So today we're going to talk about moralistic therapeutic deism. How many of y'all have ever heard that term before? Yeah? Handful? Okay, cool. It's a big, gnarly-looking term, isn't it? It sounds real sophisticated, uh, but in reality, it's, um, it's not sophisticated at all. It's, by and large, it is what, what I would call the default way that people think. And it's actually the way that I used to think um, before I was a, a Christian. And I'll give you a little bit of background here in, in just a minute. And then we'll, what we're going to do is essentially spend the class breaking down what it is, what it means, what its principles are, and why it's so nefarious. All right? So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, today, another year. Um, uh, thank you for um, just the opportunity to come together and to... Um, study about you, study your word, and, uh, and just, Father, we ask that in this class that you help us to glorify you in everything that we do, be it through deeds or words or, or actions. Well, deeds or words or, or thoughts. Um, so, Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Getting off to an awesome start. Okay, so moralistic therapeutic deism. Let's talk about the background real quick. So there was a sociologist named Christian Smith. And he and some colleagues put together a really big study. He's a, he was a professor at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Um, I think now he's at, at Notre Dame. I know he at least took a stop at, at, at Notre Dame in their sociology department. Um, but I'm not, not sure where, where he is now. Um, so they, he and his colleagues put together a big study. They interviewed about 3,000 teenagers. And this is in 2005, you know, roughly. I think it was 2001 to 2005, if I remember correctly. And they published a book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And it's actually a very, it's one of the more important books that nobody's ever heard of. And so we're going we're gonna to kind of talk about his findings and stuff. And the thing we have to remember is this is almost 20 years later. And so those teenagers are now in their 30s. And you know, raising families and that sort of thing. And by and large, we're going, to, we're going to talk about their beliefs, but by and large, their beliefs haven't really changed over the years. He had a follow-up book a few years ago, and, you know, kind of where, where are they now sort of thing. And it was just more, more of the same, okay? So let's talk a little bit about what moralistic therapeutic deism is, okay? So the first question I've got as you can see, we've got deism is kind of in bold up there. So what we're going to do is work our way backwards. We're going to talk about deism, and then therapeutic, and then, and then moralistic. Okay? All right, so what is deism? You might tell me that from uh, high school history class. Okay, a hands-off God. Okay. So God exists but he's, he's kind of hands-off. So this would be captured, that's a, a good way to, to put it. God created the world and just let it go. And the, the analogy I, I tend to use, the, the analogy that like Isaac Newton used was the clockwork universe. He said God um, wound up the universe like a clock and just let it go, and he's kind of hands-off. The analogy that I like to use is sea monkeys. It's like God ripped open a big packet of sea monkeys. That's us, by the way. He dumped it in and just kind of watch, watched it kind of kind of do his thing. And he, he, he stayed, um, stayed hands off. So we're going to go through the five principles. And the first principle is more or less what deism is. And that is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and more or less left it alone. Okay? So that's principle number one. So let's talk about that for a minute. Which of God's attributes... Does deism overemphasize to a very unhealthy degree? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, not really what I was looking for. Yes, 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 that's okay. Transcendence. transcendence. Okay, that's the word. Um, so, what does transcendence mean? So transcendence is like over, over and outside of, of something, right? 
um, from a human perspective, a human example, uh, you know, we might say, and I'm going to date myself a little bit, but like Michael Jordan, you know, we, you know, was uh, the most famous athlete on the planet, and you know, people that didn't even watch basketball knew who Michael Jordan was. And so a lot of people say that Michael Jordan transcended basketball or that Muhammad Ali transcended boxing, okay? So they're over and outside. So if you take that to kind of the metaphysical realm, the, the spiritual world, it's like it's the idea that God transcends the, the universe. He's not a part of the universe. He's outside it. He's over it, kind of that sort of thing. And so one way that we think about this is that he's distant, that God is, is distant, high above, he's majestic. And it's very true that he is all of those things. He's majestic, he's transcendent, and all of that. But um, as opposed to deism, what is the opposite extreme of deism? If God is not far away transcendent, then he would be what? Imminent, okay? Imminent is nearness, okay? Um, being fully present w- within us, which he is, okay? But if you take imminence, God's imminence, at the expense of everything else, what is that called? It's called pantheism, okay? Where God is, the world is God, okay? So you have these two extremes. You have deism on the one hand, which he's transcendent, you have pantheism, on the other hand, which he's fully, um, radically imminent, right? And in Christianity, he's what? He's, he's both. He, he, he is not creation, but uh, he is both present in every molecule of the world, of the universe. At the same time, he's outside of the universe. And it's a, a thing that we can't quite get our minds around. But they're both true. We have to hold both of them in tension. Does that make sense? Okay. So you have deism on the one hand, pantheism on the other hand. So, so when did deism come into prominence and why? Y'all remember? What's that? America, right. Around the, the founding of America in the late, um, the late 18th century, uh, late, uh, the 1700s. Um, you know, a lot of our founding fathers were actually deists. Thomas Jefferson, Ben, ben Franklin, they believed in God, but uh, from a detached, deistic sort of God. Okay? They weren't actually Christian. Um, and why, around that time, was deism becoming so prominent? Any ideas? Yes, go ahead. The Enlightenment, exactly. You had the European Enlightenment that had started, you know, 100, 150 years before, um, before that. And with the Enlightenment, man began to, or mankind, think, uh, philosophers began to think of uh, the world um, from, from mankind's perspective, right, as opposed to from God's perspective, and so what they said is the way that you find truth is not through divine revelation, but it's through either reason or empiricism, of, um, uh, seeing things, touching things, that sort of thing. And so, um, so with the Enlightenment, God kind of got put, you know, on the back shelf, more or less, okay? But deism still had a problem, and that is, you know, where do you get... Your, where, is, where does moral authority come from? You know, if, if there is no God, then, then, then who is to say what's right and wrong? Who's to say what's good and bad? And these thinkers understood that. And so what they did was they said, okay, we kind of don't need God in the day-to-day operations of the world, which is a crazy way to think, but we don't need it because we have physics, you know, we have Isaac Newton's physics, and he's kind of explained the way that the world works, and it's like a clock, okay? But, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that we, that, that we are endowed by our, what, our creator with the life, liberty, and private property. That's, that's John Locke, okay, before Thomas Jefferson. And so, 
I, you know, it seems like they held on to the existence of God, one, because they knew that, I mean, like it says in Romans, Romans 1, 18 through 23, that you can just look at the world around you and understand that there is a God, right? But then secondly, um, there's the question of where, do you, where does morality come from? Where do ethics come from? What, is, what does it base itself on? And it, you have to have something, and they didn't, want, they didn't want the world to just break down into anarchy, so they had to hold on to the fact that there is a God, and then that's where we get morality from. Does it make sense? Yeah? Good? Okay. All right. So, could you really know God in a deistic world? Is there, you know, is there really a God? Can you have a personal relationship with him? Right? And no, no, you really can't. So, you know, deism is, is really incompatible with, with Christianity. So for practical purposes, what's the difference between deism and atheism? There really isn't much, is there? That God is, you know, yeah, he created the world, but he's, he's not here anymore. You know, he's out there somewhere, and we have no contact with him, and he doesn't reveal himself. And that's what these people think, okay? So how does deism impact God's authority? Think about that for a minute, right? Even if God said, um, you know, uh, let's say the Ten Commandments, don't murder, don't commit adultery, you know, that sort of thing. But God is not present, and so there is no enforcement of those laws. What's that? There you go. When the cat's away, the, the, the mice will play, exactly. And so if God is a deistic God, if God is not present in the world, then who cares about his law? Right? And so, um, and who cares about, you know, I know really anything that he set up because he's not going to enforce it. Does that make sense? Sure. Yes. So, as a, in deism, is uh-huh. there an afterlife? That's a great question. Right yeah, now, I think, I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it depends, okay. right? Um, I think it depends on the individual because. If you think about what we're doing here is we're creating a man-made religion, right? We're taking, you know, like, like I was talking about a little while ago, coming out of the enlightenment, people are, are, are kind of looking at the world and, you know, we're able to explain the, a lot of the world with physics and kind of that sort of thing. But, you know, when you're scared, lonely, um, you're in despair, physics doesn't help you, right? And, and so th- we need, you know, mankind needs that something, something more, okay. you know? And so what they did was, you know, I, as far as I can tell, what they did was they, um, they wanted to keep God as kind of the basis for morality. Um, and so, but I think they believed about the, about the afterlife what they wanted to believe about the afterlife. And we're actually going to go into that here in a few minutes, but it's a modern thing, not a, not a historical thing. Cool? Yeah. All right. Anybody else? No? Okay. So if we're being consistent, how would deism impact prayer? Be pointless, right? Because kind of like who you're praying to, right? So, um, <laughs> so I kind of considered myself somewhat of a deist up until, I guess, my early 30s, um, an unreflective deist, which I think most deists are probably really unreflective in that anyway. But I remember in, in high school, um, in, in high school, I, I, I would pray. And essentially, my prayer every night was, um, God, please bless everybody in the world, Amen. Until um, my best friend took my girlfriend, and then, um, and then my prayer was, God, please bless everybody in the world except for Mike. Yeah, so. 
Um, so, but if you think about that, that prayer, what, who are we praying to? And, and like I said, I was kind of an inconsistent deist because deists shouldn't pray, right? All right, so if we're being consistent, deism wouldn't pray at all. However, run into principle number two. God does not need to be involved with your life except when he's needed to solve a problem. Okay, so now you can kind of see where this is going. Why is this really not consistent with deism? I'm going to stop answering these questions and we'll let you guys do it. Yes, sir. If he's transcendent, then why would he be involved in our right. individual daily lives? Exactly. If, he, if, he's not, if he's not imminent in any way, then he's not going to be, is he? Anybody else? No? Okay. Yeah, good, good, Stuart. Um, so what does this say about God's glory? What do you think? So, I'm sorry? Okay, so, um, okay, so, what's that? Makes him sound conceited? Okay, okay. So, from a, a slightly different angle, um, what would, so, forget about deism for a minute. In Christianity, well, in the real world, what is the greatest good? To honor and glorify God. It's the meaning of our lives. It's why we're here. We exist to glorify God. And, you know, you know, whatever you do in all things, do all things to the glory of God, right? And so, you know, God's glory, uh, so what, well, what does glory mean? What does glory mean? It, it's... It comes from a word that, that means weightiness, right? Weightiness. If you, you ever had a conversation, you're like, wow, that was a really heavy conversation, okay? And so you can think of glory, God's glory as God's, God's heaviness, okay? The opposite of that is like vapor or um, what's the word in uh, Ecclesiastes? Hevel, yeah, Hevel, it's the, like the opposite of glory. It's like a vapor or a wisp of smoke or something, right? There's no weight to it. Um, with glory, God, this is God's weightiness is what we're talking about. And so that is the ultimate good. It's the ultimate goal. It's, you know, the ultimate everything, really. And so if you look at this, it, it strips away God's glory for our own glory. It puts us in the driver's seat and puts God where he's like a cosmic butler, right? It, w the problem is we're here to serve God, and in this view, God is here to serve us, right? And that's wishful thinking. But it's what people believe. It is the default view of the human species, So who has authority in this way of thinking? We do. Okay? We're going back to the sin of the garden. We are, um, this is a situation where we're deciding what is what right and wrong and what the priorities are. And that was exactly what occurred in the garden. That Adam and Eve wanted to determine what was right and wrong. And so they wanted to be their own gods. And then what we find here is that um, by and large, we are our own gods, and God serves us. And of course, we're at the center of the universe in this way of thinking. But if we're honest, Christians, does this idea creep into our minds from time to time? You know? Look back, I'll look back on my life, y'all look back on your lives, and think through if there's ever been a situation where things are going really well, Let's start with, things are a little rough. I'm not happy, you know, stressed out. 
I know the more, higher my blood pressure goes, the more I'm driven to my knees, right? Whether it's, you know, issues at work or health or whatever the case may be, um, you know, we, I think we tend, we tend to spend a lot more time on our knees when things aren't going so well. But when things are going well, when you maybe you just got that promotion, you know, and kids are healthy and wealthy and you know, everything's going great, then it's like, okay, we're, we're good. You know, maybe I'll skip church this week, go to the football game. Um, so it's easy for us to, to fall into this, this sort of thing. All right, so that was kind of talking about deism. Um, any questions so far? No? Y'all are really quiet today. Last week you were, um, you were pretty rambunctious. It was great. All right, so let's talk about therapeutic. Principle number three, the main goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Okay. As a side note, the term sin is being replaced by disorder, syndrome, dysfunction, etc. So what's happening in our world and from pulpits, fortunately not this one, um, what's happening in the world is that sin is being replaced by uh, kind of victimhood, sickness, kind of that, that sort of thing. And um, so if, if sin is not a moral issue, if, if it's more of a disorder or something, then what we're talking about is we need therapy, not repentance, right? Whereas with sin, we need grace, we need repentance. Okay? So again, with this, who's at the center of the universe? Obviously, each of us are. So how does this impact the interpretation of God's word? Think about that for a minute. No accountability. What do you mean? I think you're right. I just went a little more... Okay. 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 Good. Yes. Okay. Right. Right. Any of the isms that we yeah. all pray to from a sin perspective, we no longer sin disappears, therefore hell doesn't, I'm a good person, right. because I don't sin anymore, I'm just sick, I just have right. some kind of ailment, I take a pill, yeah. and I can get better. Yeah, yeah. You, you don't need Jesus, you need a hospital or something, mm-hmm. right? So, so good. Um, where I was looking is, if the main goal of life is to be happy, and to feel good about yourself, then when we inter- we, if we interpret God's word, we all interpret God's word, but the question is, what do we start with? So if you look at something in, like, for example, I mentioned a little while, let's say, uh, don't commit adultery, right? If your starting point is, is um, God's glory is the chief good, then you're going to look at that from, you know, God's, I'd say God's perspective, but you're going to look at it from God's perspective. You're going to look at it from a holiness perspective. That the reason you're, you're, we're not to commit adultery is because God has given us um, a, a gift that is only supposed to occur between a male husband and a female wife. A one-to-one sort of thing. Okay, But... If you look at it from the perspective of, if you approach the Bible from the perspective of the chief good is for me to be happy and to feel good about myself, well, she's really cute, or he's really cute, or they're really cute. And suddenly, um, you begin to say, okay, well, look, I, I know it says don't commit adultery, and it's unqualified when it says that. But, you know, that was 3,500 years ago. And so, you know, times have changed, and we need to keep up with the times. And you can't really expect me to, you know, 
fill in the blank, okay? And a lot of people interpret their Bible like that. A lot of people interpret their Bible from the perspective of, you know, this is ultimately a book on how to be happy. It's ultimately a book, it's, it, and it's not really authoritative, it's suggestive. Or it's a bunch of wise old Jews got together and laid this out, and you can kind of take, uh, take what you like and don't take what you... Take what you like, don't take what you don't like. Parts of the Bible I like, there's parts of the Bible I don't like. Um, please don't take that out of context, by the way. Um, I have a relative who referred to herself as an a la carte Christian. Explicitly, I'm an a la carte Christian. I take what I like and I leave what I don't like. You know? I, I don't see how those two things, a la carte and Christianity, I don't think they go together. So, um, so that's how it impacts our interpretation of God's word. Um, how does this impact our ideas about truth? You know? Again, it's, it's the idea that what makes me happy is what's true. It's more about feelings than it is about objective reality. Okay? Truth, the truth that we hold to, the definition of truth, is truth is that which corresponds with reality, kind of what's out there. Yes, sir? Truth is relative. Truth is relative. Relative to? To the person. To the person. Right, exactly. And that's a problem that we have, is that uh, what may be true for you may not be true for me. Exactly. And that, um, you know, that is clearly alien to the Bible. The Bible, there is an absolute truth. You know, Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Friedrich Schleiermacher. You remember him? He, he said, the essence of Christianity is a feeling on dependence on the Creator, a feeling of dependence on the Creator. And the mystics were the ones that said that you could know God through your feelings. They didn't care about the Word of God. They didn't care really about divine revelation. It was what, what you know, you could interpret things the way you want, wanted to, whatever made you feel good. So there was the lady that um, went into her bedroom and saw water vapor that had formed uh, a picture, you know, the face of Jesus on her, um, on her windowsill by her bed. And her, the message that she got from that, from Jesus himself, was, you're not a Christian, that's okay, I love you anyway, right? So she just threw away the entire Bible, because water vapor formed on her window. So that's the sort of thing that we're talking about, and it's not crazy. Well, it is crazy, but it's here. So how does it impact our ideas about love? So what is love? Come on, guys. What's that? Love is love, yeah. God is love, right? Um, so is love about the lover or the, the beloved? Yes, sir. In this situation, love is about me. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So when we talk about, if we have a youngster, I know we have some youngsters here, so I won't, I won't point to any of them in particular, but uh, if we have a youngster that says that they fell in love, what does that mean? It, they have an, a, an emotional affection towards someone. That when they're with someone, um, they, they feel good or feel a particular way, right? And that's what the way our world defines love is you make me feel good. I'm in love with you, okay? Biblically, what is love? It's, it's sacrificial, isn't it? And it's more about the beloved. It's for the, the well-being of the beloved, not 
not the lover. Okay? So you can actually love your enemies. Okay? If you care about the well-being of your enemies, and you even go to lengths to, um, to, to help your enemies, that is loving them. And it doesn't matter if you like them or not. Right? It's a matter of loving them. We are to love one another. Um, we don't, doesn't, you know, Jesus didn't say that we have to like one another. You know, I don't like Caleb. That's okay. I love Caleb. Okay? No, Caleb is one of the easiest, most likable guys in the world, so that'd be an absurd, absurd statement. Um, no, but so, so what moralistic therapeutic deism it does is it takes love turns it around and makes it about the lover. Okay. Yes, sir. Yes, exactly. It's a selfish feeling. It's the way that I feel. And that's why, um, you know, people fall out of love all the time. You know, well, if you fall out of love, well, you never really were in love. So how does this impact our ideas about ethics? We actually talked about that a little while ago when I talked about adultery, right? It makes them relative. It, it allows us to compromise our ethics based on what we desire. Yeah. Good. Good, good. So ethics are a moving target depending on your, and not even your need, really more your want. Well, need interpreted by the individual. Yeah, okay, good. Need as interpreted by the individual. I like that, yeah. Uh, so how does this impact our relationships? All of a sudden when we're, you know, loving one another as ourselves, uh, if, uh, if there's a friend who is in need, maybe they run through a uh, uh, health issue and they lose their job and, you know, um, they're running through all kinds of crises, right? Well, what do you do? Well, that person is kind of a drain, you know. They're a drain on my time, so I'm not going to hang out with them anymore. And you, you end up turning your back on them. Where in reality, um, in Christianity, that is the person that we're supposed to love the most, you know. Um, those that are, are lonely and hungry and tired and that sort of thing, because they're the folks that need to love the most. So we talked about friendship. Friendships become very matters of convenience or prestige, right? Yeah, there you go, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Absolutely, yeah. And, and, and just as, as a side note, generally when people go to therapy, they're looking for somebody to, to tell the other person that they're wrong. That's, that's nine times out of ten. Good, thanks, Don. So, how's the lo- so how is the logical conclusions of this way of thinking played out in our world today? If we take this idea of Reality centers around me and my desires. If we take the idea that it's all about what makes me happy and what I want, how does this play out, and how are we watching this play out in the world today? Anarchy. What else? Idolatry. Good. Those are both. I think those are both right. Look for something a little more specific and a little more timely. Narcissism, yep, I agree 100%. Moral standards going, or as Isaiah would say, what is, what is right is wrong and what is wrong is right. Yeah, turning the world on its head. But how are we seeing that specifically in the world today? There you go. It's like, are you guys afraid to go there? What? So, <laughs> so, so people, you know, a man decides, or a boy you know, a three-year-old decides, I, I don't want to be a boy. I want to be a girl. 
or vice versa. Boom, you're a girl. And you know what? Nobody, um, <laughs> it's funny, it's, it's like you walk up to a genie and say, you know, make me a girl. And poof, you're a girl. Um, sorry, bad joke. Um, no, but the idea there is, is that, that things like gender and um, even, you know, I've seen 40, 50-year-old men sucking on baby bottles and pretending to be little girls. And, and it's very, very creepy. People are getting all tatted up to become, you know, uh, cats or lizards or, or whatever. And we're being told that we have to respect what it is that they, they want to be because this is, this is their true self. And that's becoming the kind of the mantra these days is you got to be true to yourself. And what being true to yourself means is that you, um, you just throw as the craziest thing out there that you possibly can, and then you challenge people to believe it, you know, and that's kind of what, what's happening today. So the world is being, being completely turned upside down. So when two people have two different ideas about happiness, who wins? You know, and if they don't come into conflict, they don't experience each other, that's okay, but, but what's happening is we're beginning to see these different um, ideologies are beginning to fragment a little bit, and be, you know, we're starting to see some, some tension, because there's no objective reality, there's no objective standard. Principle number four, God's primary concern is that everyone be nice, good, and fair to each other. It doesn't matter what you think or do, as long as you don't hurt anybody. But in a deistic world, who cares what God thinks, right? If there's no consequences, there's a law, and there's no consequences. If you have a you know, sheriff's department, for lack of a better, better word, um, that says, you know, uh, the speed limit is 35 miles an hour, but you know they're not there, and you drive 100 miles an hour, right? Is there, are there any consequences for that? No. You're just going to do what you want to do, and there's, there's nothing to pay for. Um, so who determines what is good or nice or fair? Yes, ma'am. When you have a wreck, there's some consequences. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> go around the curve. Yeah, it's a suggested speed. Yes, yep. But if, uh, but in a deistic world, does God really have a law, right? So cool. Oh, and then uh, who determines what is good or nice or fair? Well, that's up to the individual. So if you, in other words, if you're true to yourself, um, well, that's God's primary concern, that you're true to yourself. Okay. So now moralistic. Principle number five. Good people go to heaven when they die. Again, what is good, right? If you do what you truly believe, that's what I used to believe. I used to say it all the time. If you do what you truly believe is right in your heart, then you're a good person, you'll go to heaven. That's wishful thinking at best. What's that? I'm sorry? Hell doesn't exist either. That's the next question. Where do bad people go? Exactly, exactly. So how good you have to be, you know, how good is good, and, and then who sets the standard, you know? And then how do you know? Is there any assurance? You know, it's, it's crazy. It, it's really a sad, the vast majority of the world holds to this. But if you think about it, it it's not very thoughtful. It's not really very well thought through. And, and that's the problem. I mean, when I was in my mid-30s, you know, I woke up one morning after having a conversation with my atheistic boss the night before at dinner, and I realized that I'd never really put any thought into where we came from, you know, ultimately where we were going. I had ideas, but I hadn't read anything, I hadn't studied anything, I really didn't know anything, and all of a sudden it didn't sit very well, because it's like, I, I, I want to have knowledge on these things. And so I started, um, started researching, and that's, I, I guess, two, three years later, I, I was a Christian. Um, it's, the only, it's the only one that makes, it's the only worldview that makes sense. 
So why does this, what does this assume about the moral disposition of mankind? Good or bad? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because one, who determines what's good or bad? But then secondly, um, you know, who is going to willingly be a bad person? Who is a bad person in their own mind? Um, I'm trying to remember who it was. I think it was... Who's, who's the guy that wrote How to Win Friends and Influence People? Is that Andrew Carnegie? Does that sound right? Some, Dale Carnegie? No, Dale Carnegie. Yeah. Andrew Carnegie, I think, was a titan of industry or something, right? Um, I think that's right. It's been a while. Uh, anyway, he had a... Um, I remember a little snippet in, in his book. I read this like 30 years ago. And he said that there was a, a gangster that was like, if I remember correctly, he was like pinned down in a firefight. He was about to die. And he was actually writing his little manifesto. And he, he had killed all kinds of people. And he, by, by anybody's measure, he was a bad guy. But he, in his mind, he was a hero, you know? And so everybody in their own mind is, is, is a hero. Um, and so pretty much everybody, almost everybody believes that they're going to go to heaven. All right, so moralistic therapeutic deism, these are the five uh, principles kind of all, all together. It's a way to kind of summarize what it is that they believe. Now, a side note, I actually found this this morning, according to Google's generative AI, remember, we're talking about a study here that was done back in 2005. The results of the study, the results of what we've just been talking about, show that religion and spirituality are significant in the lives of many American teenagers. Now, is that the message that you just got out of what we were talking about? No. What we're talking about is, you know, for the last, I don't know, 45 minutes, is that it's the exercise in selfish, wishful thinking. But what you know, Google says about it is that it's really important to these people. And you know what? That's important as long as they're um, true to themselves, right? Yes, ma'am. No. No. They would think that they are probably spiritual, but not religious. Kind of, and that'd probably be the bulk of them. Um, or normal might be, yeah. Um, they would refer to us as fundamentalists. Or, um, oh, you're a born-again Christian. Yeah. Is there any other kind? I mean, you know. So, um, no, this moralistic therapeutic deism is a, uh, it's a name that this uh, Christian Smith put on kind of this phenomenon or this belief system. It's been very, very valuable. And the issue, well, we'll get into what Barna says. Do you know who George Barna is? He's a, kind of a, a not a marketer, um, research guy, does studies, that sort of thing. Takes polls. He's a pollster, I guess you could say. So 2008, he said, to increasing millions of Americans, God, if we even believe in a supernatural deity, exists for the pleasure of humankind. He resides in the heavenly realm solely for our utility and benefit. Although we are too clever to voice it, we live by the notion that true power is accessed not by looking upward, but by turning inward. And that's a, I think that's a great assessment of what's going on. And this inward idea, a lot of that kind of comes from the Eastern mystical religions like Hinduism and Buddhism and things of that nature. Unless something changes, it will be every man for himself with no second thoughts or regrets about the personal societal implications of this incredibly selfish, nihilistic, and narcissistic way of life. Now, I think those were some terms that we all kind of were applying here. And you got to remember, this is 2008. This is before kind of the big woke revolution and all of that. And I think that, you know, we're living in what's coming close to the logical conclusion of this way of thinking. All right. So, um, any questions? No? Okay.
Paradox? Yeah, you've got God that's listed as the, as the other part of his command. Yeah. They don't go together. Right. Absolutely. Um, we hang on to this idea of maybe kind of like we, I, I mentioned to people who call themselves Christians, they say, well, you think you have your fire insurance. Right, right. Um, and it's almost that kind of dichotomy where, yes, we recognize there's this spiritual God thing, mm -hmm. but um, the importance of me. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Calvin said that um, the human heart is, a, is an idol factory. And I think the chief idol of our hearts is, is ourselves. Absolutely. All right, so we're going to talk about two Greek words here real quick. Um, and actually, is there a summary here? Yeah, so we'll get to that in a minute, so sorry. All right, so the first Greek word is arche, okay, arche. Um, are you all familiar with this term? Maybe you've seen it in uh, architect or archetype or arch, kind of that sort of thing. And what it means is origin, source, uh, source of action, beginning, command, power, originating cause, that sort of thing. And context for this word goes all the way back to about the 6th century uh, B.C. There was a Greek philosopher named Thales. Um, Thales is generally recognized as the first philosopher. He was um, a Milesian, and he's... Um, what was it, like May 28th, 585 B.C., I think, they said was the birth of philosophy. And it's when Thales uh, predicted a solar eclipse um, that was about to occur. But anyway, so Thales um, believed that all of the world had its source in something that he called the Arche. And for Thales, that Arche was water. You know, he said he believed that all life, all... Um, uh, material things, uh, was it earth, wind, fire, what am I missing, earth, wind, fire, air, no, earth, wind, and water, yeah, <laughs> I missed the one, that, yeah, they all um, found their source in water, right, and the idea would be, if you see water, you freeze it, it becomes solid, so this chair is made out of solid water, you know, um, it also turns into steam, you know, now, how you get from water to fire, I'm not sure, but he did it, okay? And so, so Thales thought that the Arche was, was water. Uh, Heraclitus came, I don't know, a century later. He thought it was fire, right? But for each of these early uh, Greek philosophers, they believed that there was an Arche that everything originated from, okay? Oh, and it's the thing without which nothing else could really exist, Okay, so let's put a pin in that real quick. There's another word called telos. Okay, telos means purpose, goal, end, fulfillment, that sort of thing. So if you have the telos of something, it's the purpose or the, the goal of something. Okay, so we have the RK and the, the telos. Um, and so, you know, you could think of the, the telos as why something exists, why, why it's been brought about, that sort of thing. Jesus is the Arche and the Telos. Because we can look in Revelation 22 where it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Those words beginning and end are actually Arche and Telos. There are a lot more, this is a lot deeper passage then it's important that Jesus has been from eternity past to eternity future. But what that last little phrase is saying is so much more. It's saying Jesus is the source from which we all exist. Okay, Without the RK, without Jesus, we wouldn't be here. And if you look in Colossians, I think it was chapter 1, talks about through Jesus, everything was made. Okay. And then the telos, he's the reason we're here in the first place. He's the reason that there is a creation. 
God the Father is giving uh, all authority in heaven and on earth to the Son as the gift. Okay? And so, any, any worldview, any derivative of Christianity, any corruption of Christianity that we may have, where Christ is not the center, the arche and the telos is a corruption of reality. Okay? Uh, Romans 11, Paul said something similar. He said, for from Jesus and through Jesus and uh, to Jesus are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And of course, God does not share his glory with anybody, right? So wrapping up, the root of the problem that we have here is that we have placed ourselves at the center of the universe. In our minds, we have relegated God to the role of cosmic butler. We have deliberately have to deliberately remove ourselves from that position and recognize God's glory as the uh, um, absolute greatest good. If we begin to look at life through that lens, which is actually a clear lens because that's what reality is, um, God's glory is the, is the greatest good. If we begin to live our lives, read our Bibles, talk to people, love people in that way, um, with that end in mind, with that telos in mind, um, then it goes a long way. It's our purpose, the reason we're here. It's our significance, it what, what gives us you know, weightiness. And it's the only way that the world really, really makes sense. Because without that, we mentioned nihilism a little while ago, the world is, is pretty meaningless. So we're here to serve God and not the other way around. All right? Any other questions, thoughts? You guys are so quiet today. No? Okay. Um, so like I said, Ken is going to teach next week. I have no idea what he's going to teach on, and quite honestly, I don't think he has any idea what he's going to teach on. Um, and, then, uh, and then we'll be out the following week, and then Michaela will be here, um, I guess, uh, is that New Year's Eve? I think, and then um, the 31st, I guess, and then the following week after that, we'll begin to talk about uh, soteriology, which is the study of salvation. Okay, cool. And then we'll, we'll continue on from there. So cool. Um, so Father, thank you once again uh, for today, for this time. Um, we love you. We trust you. Uh, let us each uh, glorify you in everything that we think and say and do. Um, help us to recognize um, this idea and uh, moralistic therapeutic deism in our own lives and in those of the lives of the folks that we love and that we, we converse with. And Father, don't let this uh, compel us to not allow this to be a source of pride where we think that we're superior in some way, but that we actually um, uh, see it as, as something that is just, it, it's not glorifying to you. And uh, help us to um, give us the words and the wisdom to counsel folks, disciple folks um, into uh, looking to you for, um, for everything, for all things. Father, we love you. We trust you. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen.